The Interchange is brought to you by Schneider Electric. Did you know that we've built more microgrids in the U.S. than anyone else? These self-contained electrical networks allow you to generate your own electricity on-site and use it when you need it most. Keep your power on during a grid outage. Store electricity and sell it back during peak demand times. Integrate with renewables such as wind and solar. With a microgrid, you get energy control on your terms. See what's possible at www.se.com US microgrid. The Interchange is brought to you by Bloom Energy. Bloom Energy is transforming the way businesses and communities take charge of their energy supply through resilient, predictable, and zero-carbon solutions. Bloom's on-site energy platform provides unparalleled control for those looking to secure clean, reliable, 24-7 power that scales to meet critical business needs. Today's energy challenges are unprecedented and widespread. Bloom's platform eliminates outage and price risk while accelerating us all toward a zero-carbon future. Find the links in the show notes. That's the problem that the United States currently faces. The whole industry across the US, notwithstanding the likes of Tesla, is behind the pace on a global scale. This is The Interchange, Recharged. I'm David Banmiller, welcome. talking electric vehicles today. From range anxiety to federal incentives, there's a lot to talk about in EVs. We could probably spend an entire season on it. Our two guests today will help us stay plugged in and fully charged. Professor Gil Tall joins us from UC Davis. I actually played against UC Davis in football in college, so I won't hold it against him. Hello, Gil. Hello. Good morning. Gil serves there as director of the Plug-In Hybrid and Electric Vehicles Research Center. He's also a PhD holder and a faculty member at the Institute of Transportation Studies at UC Davis. His work focuses on travel behavior and the related policies for new transportation technologies. Professor Peter Wells is also here. Hi, Peter. Hello, David. Peter is the director of the Center for Automotive Industry Research at Cardiff University in Wales. Peter focuses on cultures of automobility, business models, socio-technical transitions, and sustainability. Welcome to the show, you two, and thank you for lending us your time. Gil, I think I'll uh, uh, kick off with you. 2021, we've seen a lot of advancement in transport decarbonization. EV sales has more than tripled from the first half of 2021 from 2020. And I think part of that, obviously, is lower car sales from, from the pandemic. But the market share, we actually saw double to about 7% EVs globally. Curious as to your thoughts on what is driving that adoption and the increased market share for the EVs globally? That's a great question because what driving it is change in policy. So what driving the EV market is not what I was thinking will happen that people will knock on the doors of the dealers and the car companies and will force them to make electric cars. But people were actually knocking on the doors of their political representatives, telling them, make them build electric cars for us. And 2021, uh, showing it, showing it in Europe, showing it in China uh, and other countries. Yeah, just to come in on that, I think clearly regulation has been driving the the shape of this market across the world, really, but also indirectly regulation is driving it. So we're seeing more and more people, more and more companies, governments stepping up 
with CO2 emissions requirements. And, and that's really taking hold across the market. So in the end, that means that consumers, be they retail consumers or corporate consumers, are buying into electric vehicles in part because they want to buy into a lower carbon agenda. So you're, so you're talking policy on driving the adoption of electric vehicles. Uh, what else do you think needs to be done here in the States? Because what we've seen is obviously from a global standpoint, you've got China and the EU really driving the growth with the United States coming in third. So seeing as now we've got the infrastructure bill passed, I think there's going to be continued focus on these types of legislations going forward. What else do you think on that front needs to be implemented to further drive that growth? As you said, we do need these incentives. It's very important. We need the infrastructure, and now we will have the money for the infrastructure. The third leg of this three-legged stool is, as we started with, regulation that will push the OEMs, the car companies, to make these cars. CO2 regulations, or better, gas mileage, cafe regulations, or as the state of California is doing, ZEV regulations, one of the three is necessary to uh, push the car companies to make these cars so everyone who wants to will be able to buy one. I think from a European perspective, what we see is a perhaps a broader portfolio of policy. You know, so we, we've got all sorts of things going on here which are not yet really catching hold in the US. For example, uh, zero emission or very low emission city zones, or um, not just looking at incentives for new car buyers, but looking at incentives for retrofit. You know, bearing in mind, you know, in the United States, when I last looked, they had a lot of old cars. And, and rather than just scrapping those cars, it may be worth thinking about, you know, what can we do to, to keep these things on the road? What can we do for people who cannot buy new? Uh, do you have to wait for the trickle down for all of the whole stock of cars in use to go electric? I think, uh, you know, the US could do a lot more across a broader spectrum of policies to, to really drive this, this change in the industry. So it sounds like it's policy changes or further adoption of legislation to really drive not only the manufacturers, but the consumers as well. So you're kind of looking at a broad umbrella of policies to help drive it from, from both sides of the spectrum. In a sense, globally, I think we're already past that point in, in that now there's a scramble amongst the manufacturers to have a slice of this market. And that means that there's more more product being made available across a wider spectrum of product segments, you know, from very small cars to the very large, across a whole range of different manufacturers. So now it's about getting, getting a foothold into that race. And that's the problem that the United States currently faces. The, the whole industry across the US, notwithstanding the likes of Tesla, is behind the pace on a global scale. What technological advancements have you seen to overcome some of the concerns people have on the on the distances or whether they're stuck in traffic for a while that they may be stuck without a charge? Are you seeing any advancements that would help lengthen the charge or take some of those concerns away to help further the adoption? Well, I think you know what we've seen in uh, mostly in Europe at the moment is that that there are all sorts of kind of rescue companies now developing uh, to, who will come and kind of give you a quick top up charge, you know, via a van, a bit rather similar to bringing along a can of petrol and pouring it in. But th that's not a particularly adequate solution. Now, imagine the scenario where a whole bunch of people turn up to watch a football game in the US. You know, there's a huge number of vehicles parked outside. What if a number of those then 
fail to, 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 to keep their enough charge. You know, then you've got a real problem trying to get those people home. Or if you're stuck in traffic, as you say. And the only upside is that whilst you are stuck in traffic and not moving, you're not using a lot of power. So <laughs> so there is that. As long as you're not trying to heat or cool the car too much, it, it's not a, it shouldn't be a drastic situation. I think it is a problem, but it's an exaggerated problem. Uh, that it, it, it's something that people worry about until they actually live with an EV. And then most of those worries go away. I, I have to say, I have experienced this exact problem um, in, in Wales. I took the family up to uh, in my EV to a place in mid Wales, fantastic, lovely venue. They actually had six charge posts there available, but because it's mid Wales, no telephone connection, couldn't use the app, therefore couldn't use the charge posts, therefore, Oh dear. <laughs> so these things do happen. Um, but I think that, that those kind of situations will get much reduced. And, and where governments are investing the money is precisely on those major highways. And, and it's the same in the US. You know, it's, it's those major highways where the public charging infrastructure will be put in. And hopefully that will reduce most of those worries. What have changed quite dramatically in the last 10 years Uh, is the cost and density of uh, of energy. We started uh, 10 years ago, a little bit earlier, with 80-mile range cars, which in the, in the US, 80-mile range car is what we call a car on a leash. When you leave home, the empty light turn on. Immediately when you leave the empty light, that, that's 80-mile more or less. But that's history. No car company is selling uh, 80-mile range or even 100-mile range cars. And modern cars have 200-mile plus. Uh, at the same time, it, we started with batteries that were more than $1,000 per kilowatt hours, and now we are at 10% of that. And some people, you know, saying that it will go even lower. So we can pack much more batteries in, in these cars. The thing that have, we have not changed much is the fact that fast charging is still take 10, 20 minutes. It's still not a two minutes thing like a gas station. And that will take much longer. But if after 300 miles I need to stop for 20 minutes, that's not a bad idea usually. Uh, so in most cases, it's not going to be uh, a big problem. Can we get to 100% of the cars being electric with lithium-ion batteries? Probably not. With this technology, I don't know. Some people will say 50, some people will say 30 or 70, but it's somewhere there, very far from the half a percent we have on the road today. You know, it's a good point about people being scared of certain problems before they actually have an electric vehicle, right? They're going to go through multitude of different things that could happen that ultimately likely likely won't. But that's still kind of the other the other leg to the store. We talked about policy and, and what's being done uh, on their technology. You know, I, I think I'm of the belief that we're going to continue to advance technologically. I mean, the battery sizes are going to get smaller. They're going to be able to hold the charge longer. There's going to be greater distances. So given time, a lot of these are going to be resolved. But then it, it gets also down to that that consumer and, and what can you do to help further that adoption? How do you get them beyond that mindset? And the question I have for you is, as it is a transition, do you think hybrids play a big role in that to help alleviate some of these initial concerns that, look, if they lose their charge, they can go a little bit further or just something to help cross that barrier with the consumers that might still have some doubts? Yeah, I think firstly, to go back to that issue um, around range anxiety and so forth, a big 
potential contributor to resolving that is is not in the car at all in that sense it's 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 the communication system it's the ability to to be tapped into 5g networks which will identify charging points and you can book in advance and all of these sorts of features which are really coming onto cars now so those sorts of technologies take away some of the anxiety for consumers they manage that anxiety by by helping resolve the problems that they think they might face so i think that's really important Second thing is that a hybrid is horrible. You're, all you're doing is carrying around two powertrains, most of the time for a waste. So it's just an extra weight. And, and the question of weight is, I think, one that is really neglected, particularly in the US debate today. If you've got a car, typical modern big electric car, like an SUV or, or a big muscle sports car, it's over 2,000 kilos for one person. And I think that's... That's a real problem. It, it, it goes well beyond the issue of uh, carbon emissions and it goes well beyond the issue of air quality. It takes you into the territory of you know, how much resource does a person need in order to have a lifestyle. And, and the same goes for the proliferation of vehicles. You know, If you've got one battery electric and one hybrid and one petrol and one blah, 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 and one blah, 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 you, know, you, you end up with an awful lot of cars per household. That, again, is immensely resource intensive. And I think in Europe, we're getting more and more concerned about those kind of issues, particularly when we look at things like the circular economy and the need to kind of drive down our resource dependence on other countries and those sorts of issues. So once you start thinking about the future of electric cars, it takes you automatically into those sorts of territory. You can't escape having to think about those things as well. And this, again, I think is where the US administration has not really grasped the net or they've not really confronted some of those bigger issues. For example, where is the US going to get all of its cobalt, all of its lithium, all of its rare earths for those for those motors? Well, they're all going to come from China or from the Democratic Republic of the Congo or some other place which is not particularly reliable as a source. So, you know, I think we have to really think about what kind of mobility, what kind of motorization do we want? What kind of motorization can we practically achieve and how do we fill that gap? It is interesting because I think there are some people that would buy hybrids and not the plug-in hybrids, but the original type hybrids that think that they're doing something when in reality it's, you know, they're continuing to consume the gas and it's those plug-in hybrids that, you know, might be, might be a transition, but it's still, you know, it seems like all of these, these points continue to solve the problem, but again, to the consumer and, and a change in, in being more efficient with the energy use and really taking what, what they need versus the, you know, I, I like to have that. I want to, I want to have a truck that's going to pull 50,000 pounds even though I'm never going to pull more than 1,500, <laughs> right? Which seems to be... Uh, uh, well, I don't know. I'd be interested to hear your views on this because um, I, I've noticed myself that driving an electric car has changed my driving behavior, partly because I have indeed one of those cars on a leash. You know, <laughs> It doesn't do more than 100 miles on a charge. So I have to be real careful how I drive. You know, It's really gentle acceleration gentle braking and so on and so on so and then that makes me a much safer driver but it changes your attitude to driving makes you really think about the the situation on the road and and anticipate emerging traffic situations and all these sorts of things and i wonder in you know in the u.s context it's a very relaxed driving style i always have an image of a kind of guy sitting back driving his two-ton car with his finger you know it's, it's all power assisted it's all relaxed and easy going and i just wonder you know 
would the US market, will US consumers be able to adapt to driving in a different kind of way? So actually, <laughs> we collect data from uh, thousands of cars. We, uh, we install loggers on them, so we have second-by-second second data. And our EV drivers are more aggressive. No, they no. really enjoy the <laughs> fast acceleration. You know, electric uh, cars yes, uh, yes, yes, is yes. doing uh, a zero to uh, 60 or 100 kilometers per hour much faster than, uh, than gasoline cars, much more quiet. You are not, when you floor it, when you accelerate very hard with electric car, you don't get this feedback from the engine. Don't do it. Like, ah, it's not shouting at you. It's actually really fun. Uh, and we find our EV drivers to be more aggressive than regular driver. But yeah, in, that's worrying. <laughs> but in, in general, I think that what's happening in the US and in a way also in Europe and other places is that EVs are the option to uh, move to a cleaner transportation without giving up on anything in our current lifestyle, which I'm not sure if it's doable. And uh, uh, but but taking this discussion, do we need to change our lifestyle? By moving to EVs, we can still buy a larger, bigger car. And in the U.S., our cars are getting bigger and bigger uh, all the time. And we don't need to give up on anything in our current lifestyle. We're actually moving to even better zero to 60. We're even quiet, more quiet and, and so on. And, and that's, I think, why there is a consensus right now for electric cars. The, the, the opposition is, is not as big as it used to be because you don't need to give up on anything in your current lifestyle. And I think that that's, that's the promise of electric cars. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I think, I think you're right, Gil. I mean, I, I have to confess, in a moment of weakness, I have indulged in racing away from the traffic lights in my humble Nissan Leaf against, you know, the, the archetypical BMW driver next to me and enjoying the first, you know, 10 seconds whilst he, <laughs> whilst he sat looking dazed behind me. Uh, so, yeah, you're right. Um, but, yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because they are so much easier to drive. Um, they are and and, to, and and like you say, you don't get that level of feedback as you're driving along the road there. That maybe maybe you do get even more insulated. You're more of a cocoon inside those electric cars, uh, and it's real nice. You know, it's super comfortable. The kids love it. Uh, you know, it, it, it's 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 quite a welcoming environment. And and after a while, if you then go back into a normal car, you know, petrol or diesel. You kind of think, what's that weird noise? Why is all this rumbling going on? <laughs> you know, it sounds kind of weird in there. And and so. Yeah, I think we, there will be a change, and maybe maybe the, the actual long-term future is electric cars are easier, more fun, lower cost. You know, they'll be used, in fact, more than petrol and diesel cars are used today. Gail, I think your your comment is spot on. I think here in the states, what you find is most people in general are all for energy transition. They recognize the need for electric vehicles, but it's that mentality of, I'm all for it. Unless you're telling me that it's going to disrupt my life, that at that point, then I have some questions. And, and from where you're talking about your experiences in the electric vehicle, Peter, is that I think there needs to be a lot more education and a lot more understanding. And, and this is an industry that is moving so rapidly and so quickly that sometimes it's tough for the average consumer to keep up to what's available and, and what that they may be thinking of electric vehicles five years ago versus where they are today and they're still under that mentality but uh, to, Gil, to your point i think that that's one of the hurdles with the consumer to try to get over is 
like bringing up Texas here again is I'm all for electric vehicles until you're going to tell me that when I drive up to Dallas that I have to stop and charge for two hours and, and sit there and wait. That gets to be a little bit more of a, a yeah, and we, which is not the case anymore. So let, let's let's talk about like the market in the first 10 years and then a little bit after what what we see today is that uh, electric cars are the, the premium product. You buy a Tesla and uh, you it's also electric as i said it's also have the best autopilot and it's quiet and uh, you do have the 5g communication and, and 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 it's also electric and this is you know people when want to other car companies other oems are also going for electric as their premium product uh, some of them even call it this way if you go to a toyota the one with the plug is the prime it's the rav4 prime the prius prime so if you say, oh, what, what can I get with all the bells and whistles? That's the one with the plug. Uh, and and, and that's, where, that's where many car companies are, are taking us. And th- this is the way I think that electric cars are going to look like mostly in the coming 10 years. They're going to be the, the premium, the high level, the best, the best product, and people will gravitate there. Only later, I believe that we will start seeing the cars that are make more sense. The car that Peter is driving today, uh, that will be the second car in the household. Oh, I don't need a 400-mile car. I can pay half the price for a 200-mile car. And I know that when I will drive to uh, across the country, I will drive the second car, not this one. But un- unfortunately... If you know, when we think about it on on climate change and so on, it will take time to get there. I think personally that what will happen is that the Chinese will start bringing very good cars to the U.S. for very low price, and what happened to the American uh, industry to Detroit will happen again. They keep trying to go for larger vehicles to survive. They did it with the Japanese cars in the 70s. We did it with the European cars. They did it with the Korean car. They gave up all together on cars. They only make trucks. <laughs> uh, and pushing for bigger and bigger and electrifying these bigger machines, which will work for a few years, but then we will get very nice electric cars for half the price. And yeah, this is a, a key debate, isn't it, Gil? Because um, currently, I think uh, battery manufacturing costs in China are 60% of those in the US. You know, uh, it. It, it, it's not a level playing field and they're, they're not only coming up with some good quality products, you know, quite a lot of battery electric cars are built in China and exported out, including from Tesla, including Volkswagen, including BMW, you know, so it's not like it's just kind of bit players here. It's also indigenous players coming up with not only the technologies, but also really interesting business models. I mean, you look at a company like Neo, they're, they're doing battery swaps now in Europe. Um, yeah, battery swaps get past that whole issue of you know, I've got to wait two hours to charge my car you can drive in you can swap your battery out and it's away within five minutes so now that there's all sorts of solutions coming up i think the interesting thing here is you know years ago i, I went to a presentation by professor Stuart hart he's, he's, he's now an emeritus at cornell i believe um really great guy really insightful he, his big thing was regulation drives industry to innovate and by doing that it makes industry competitive so the to me the u.s industry is only now kind of waking up to that and and as gill has quite carefully identified they, they're kind of waking up too late and they and their product their, their scope for innovation is now severely reduced so i think there's a real risk that they get stuck in this kind of cul-de-sac of light trucks, which 
isn't really where the rest of the world is going to go. And that's the risk for the US industry. You'll, you'll become an enclave and the rest of the world will do, go, and go away and do something else. This is absolutely the case. And I would like to build on this risk factor. The do nothing is the default because we know how to make money by selling trucks. 40 years, 50, I don't know, 60, many years of selling trucks and making money on selling trucks, actually selling large vehicles, you make more money than selling small. It's, it doesn't cost that much more to build a larger vehicle, it's a little bit more metal in it, but it doesn't cost much more. Uh, and that's what most of the industry is, is doing today. And they're trying to delay the decision on moving to electric and, and for good reasons. We are talking about lithium ion batteries. Uh, and we all know that uh, solid state batteries are the next big thing. And if, uh, if, uh, if a car company will make billions of dollars investment, and then four or five years later, someone in uh, China, in Europe, even in the US will come with much better technology, they will have their Kodak moment, seeing all of their investment disappearing. And, and they're waiting, waiting because right now the level of uncertainty is still very high. Uh, is the support from the federal government will stay? There is election every four years, uh, is uh, you know, and, and, and so on. So this decision when to jump to the deep end uh, is, is a big one. And the American OEMs are always late in jumping to the, to the deep yeah, end. Yeah, this is a key point, isn't it? But it's not just the, uh, it's not, not just the manufacturers that are kind of deciding when to jump. It's also consumers. And, you know, one of the downsides for me as a fairly early adopter is precisely this pace of technological change. So in my case, in my car, the, I, I had an early generation model, the second generation model, has twice the range, you know, at, at less than the original price. That means the residual value of my car has now fallen through the floor. So how many consumers are going to pay on a big ticket item with that level of residual risk? And, and the same applies, of course, to leasing companies and all those kind of major purchases of cars. They, they're the ones that are key to this market. And, and in reality, to get enough cars out there to make a difference, you've got to be able to permeate not just new sales, but used. And right now, that's my big worry. What, what, what's happening in those used car markets? Who is going to go and buy a three, five, seven-year-old electric car? when the battery warranty runs out after eight years and you're left with something which is probably unsaleable. Yes, that's, that's why we, were, we kind of were, I think, happy that not everyone were buying the first generation car because, uh, yeah, we need these people like you and me and others that were jumping and buying it even so we knew that the risk is pretty high. But I think that we are getting much better in that. When iPhone 2 was coming or iPhone 3 was coming out, iPhone 1 re resale value was zero. Uh, but when iPhone 10 was coming out, the iPhone 9 price dropped by $100 or so. You know, uh, These things is, ch is changing fast. You're absolutely right. The resale value of the first generation was was dramatically low, but already today, and even without the supply chain issues, we see that the resale value is holding pretty well for uh, for the longer range uh, longer range car. It's still uh, maybe a problem for low income households, and in California, for example, we are working on longer warranty, actually forcing the car companies to extend the warranty, same way that California was forcing the car company to extend the warranty on the uh, emission uh, 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 and the catalytic converter and so on. So it will not be 
it's not going to be that the low-income second buyer will always pay the price of the new technology. The Interchange is brought to you by Schneider Electric. Are you looking for more energy control, but worry about the upfront costs of a microgrid and renewables? We have you covered. Schneider Electric offers energy as a service for customers like you who spend $40,000 or more each month on energy. With energy as a service, you get customized solutions to help you meet goals for sustainability, efficiency, and cost control, including a microgrid and adjacent energy infrastructure. We also handle every step of the process and assume financial and operational risks. Upgraded electrical equipment, reduced emissions, predictable long-term pricing. Energy as a Service provides all this and more. Find the links in the show notes. Bloom Energy is accelerating the hydrogen economy by partnering with industry leaders to produce clean, green hydrogen. Bloom's electrolyzer uses electricity and heat from a variety of renewable energy sources, such as concentrated solar power, solar panels, and nuclear power to generate green hydrogen at the scale needed to tackle today's urgent climate crisis. Bloom's pioneering solid oxide fuel cell platform leverages technology originally developed for Mars and is uniquely designed to address both the causes and consequences of our changing climate, decarbonizing our world's hardest to abate sectors. Bloom's platform has the flexibility to be deployed as a distributed generator of electricity or as an electrolyzer to produce green hydrogen. Leveraging scale and experience, Bloom provides solutions needed to propel our world towards a better energy future. See the link in the show notes. It's, I mean, you bring up the iPhone. I'm the type of guy that I never buy the first iPhone rollout. I wait until the second or third, just until the bugs are fixed. And and you bring up though very excellent points on getting the consumer on board, right? Because when they buy a a typical gas powered vehicle, they have confidence that that value will hold for some period of time, right? They'll be able to sell it uh, five years, six years down the road and, and get something back for it. And there's a little bit of concern over, okay, I get a 200 uh, mile vehicle now, but in three years, the, the technology can change so much more that it's almost obsolete. And at that point, it's scrap value or, or any type of recycling that they can do. And it really moves like a valuation of a technology company today at a very fast paced. You kind of get in and out. And, and it's what do you think needs to be done? I mean, is it just pure, I guess it's not technological advancement, but what, what needs to be done from the consumer side to help get past some of that? I mean, do you have to see a leveling out of the advancements for people to say, okay, now's the time to jump in or any thoughts on that? Yeah, I don't think you can can hold progress back, you know, finger in the dike and hope for the best. I don't think that's going to work. Um, but what you can do is, 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 well, there's a number of things. I mean, for example, we need to do a lot of work on training the independent uh, garage sector so that uh, people can go and take their car, whatever their car, whatever the technology down and get it fixed. So that's one thing. I, certainly in Europe, a big thing now is um, consumer right to fiddle with a car. You know, to, to in the good old days, you could get under the hood of your car. I bet you did, David, back in the day. You know, you could get in there with a spanner and, and a screwdriver and do stuff. Well, you can't do that with your average Tesla. So, you know, th- that sort of thing is going to be important. Then you've got issues around, um, you know, assuring the, the ability to retrofit. I think that's going to be a really big, important point, you know, that car companies have to be told to make available competitively priced at least you know as good as new replacement battery packs for vehicles until we get to the point and Volkswagen have claimed this is going to happen pretty soon we might get to the point where the battery pack lasts longer than the car now when that happens 
you're in a different kind of calculus, obviously. But uh, up to that point, then we've got to do everything possible to kind of cushion the blow, shall we say, uh, for those used car buyers. And that could include incentives for used car buyers, for example. It can include incentives for charging posts at home or wherever they may be. It can include um, incentives for companies to do retrofits or, or refits of battery technologies. So, you know, I think we need to think much more carefully about you know, where we spend the money to support markets. And then also, and I think this is an important point that US hasn't fully grasped, we need a stick. You know, your gas prices are ridicu ridiculously low. You know, it, it, it's mad. The rest of the world, the rest of the world, apart from maybe Saudi Arabia and Kuwait, look on aghast. You know, you need that stick to drive some of this change as much as you need the incentives to pull it. Unfortunately, fortunately, I think that trying to make gas more expensive here is almost as uh, hard as taking our guns away from us. So I'm not expecting that to uh, <laughs> to change. <laughs> well, you could do both, so, you know. <laughs> so, so we need to, I think that we kind of know that we need to walk within more or less. A gas price may go up a little bit or tax will go up a little bit, but I don't think that that will be the push that will change the market uh, in, 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 in the fourth in, uh, future. I, I do agree that we need to be able to fix these cars, but that's actually lead me to another topic. We are going to see uh, much more autonomous capabilities. I'm not a big believer in this uh, fully autonomous car that will show up at my driveway with a robot in the driver's seat and will take me without, you know, without having a driver license. I do believe that in the next even 10 or 15 years, we will buy cars that will be, you will have to drive them every once in a while, or you will have to be able to drive them. But when these cars are getting into the market, uh, our ability to fix them or to control them or to change anything in these cars is getting more and more difficult. And electric vehicles are, I think, the prime cars to be also autonomous or semi-autonomous. And we already see it from, from Tesla. And that's going to change quite a lot what car we are driving, how we drive our cars, how we use the cars. Uh, and, and we need to think about this much bigger change that electrification is only one part of it. I personally prefer that there will be no right to fix any autonomous capabilities. I don't want any of my neighbors to start tinker with <laughs> the autonomous capabilities of their cars. <laughs> you know, it's okay if they want to keep, they should buy their uh, old V8 and keep fix that if they really want to fix stuff. Uh, but I think that that's still a, a big question on how we, how we will combine these two changes that are happening simultaneously now. Yeah, interesting, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I agree. You don't want to, you don't want your neighbor fiddling with the software, that's for sure. But on the other hand, you know, another another aspect to this that is, we've not really broached very much is this idea of kind of the subscription model of buying cars, of shared shared vehicle use, and the idea that perhaps one way of getting around limiting your vehicle choice um, is to have the ability to access other types of vehicle as and when you might need them. And, and that's is booming in Europe right now. This, this is where all the action is in terms of you know, market innovation and so forth. So I, I think there's, there's a lot of scope for looking at different ways of kind of ownership, different ways of, of usership 
as we might call it, uh, for these cars that will come again with electric um, that gives you that, that greater flexibility. You know, even to the point where, yes, a few, some car companies here have been offering things like uh, electric scooters <laughs> on, on the same kind of package. And you might laugh in a way. And of course, it, it may be in a US sense. I can't see you driving, you know, from Galveston to Dallas in, on an electric scooter. But... In, in urban London or, or Paris or Berlin, you know, these things make a lot of sense. And, and and so it's thinking about the whole mobility package. And what we see now, of course, is car companies really positioning themselves to do just that. They're no longer really in the business of just building the cars. They're talking about these autonomous cars, but they again, they make sense in the context of more shared vehicles you know, to the point where maybe... Um, you know, your, your old granny who can no longer drive uh, can be taken down to the shops in one of these things. And then when she gets there, somebody else will use it to go somewhere else. So, you know, it, it's it's a different sort of future for this industry that that, that has not happened. You know, they've had 120 years of stability in the automotive industry. And that's just going to be blown right out of the water now. And electrification is key. But as Gil says, you know, autonomous cars, shared cars, the communications with cars, all these things are going to absolutely revolutionize what we think about as, as mobility. And it might take a while to reach rural Tennessee. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm prepared to accept that just as it, it will take a while to, to reach rural Wales. But it will get there in the end, because I think in the end, we're going to see a, a complete reverse of the situation and it's going to be petrol car drivers who are worried about range because they can't find a petrol station. And in uh, Norway, already people are not buying petrol or gasoline cars because they are worried about the resale value. We, we, see, we see that in, in Norway, which is the leading market in the world for electric cars, this trend totally shifts. It, it started with diesel. After diesel gate, uh, people were not buying any diesel cars because they were like, oh, this thing, will, we will have to phase it out soon. And now gas cars in Norway, people are thinking about it as temporary solution and they don't want to invest in it. So things, things will change. I believe that in the US, it's, uh, it's more than 10 years from now that, that we will see this larger change. I think that it will come with better type of batteries, probably solid state or something else. Between now and 2030, 2035, we will still see a, a, a graduate change, except from some state like California and the states that follow in California, that's called the ZEV states, 13 states that follow in California that will push much faster and probably going to get most of the federal credits because the money will go to whoever want to buy these cars. So from a global perspective, uh, who do you think is doing best uh, in EVs? Well, you know what, I, on the industry side, you know, I think the really interesting stuff, funnily enough, is is to, for me at least at the moment, Volkswagen. Uh, I know they're, in, you know, somewhat uh, in bad books in the US, but you know what, what's interesting about what Volkswagen is up to at the moment is, is they've got this really integrated vision of not only a circular economy but a circular business model to fit. So they're designing from the outset. They're design Volkswagen are designing battery packs that are already um, kind of compatible across a whole range of different models. So they've got the kind of modular approach to the design of the battery pack. They're also 
designing the vehicles around these sort of two or three basic platforms. So already they're looking at the kind of modularity and economies of scale in, in their manufacturing system. They're, they're integrating backwards. So they've got, uh, they've got ownership on uh, battery manufacturing and even in, further into the supply chain. But they're also integrating the other way. So they are looking at controlling the life cycle of the vehicle through not just one lease, but two, three, maybe even four leases, because they want to hold on to that battery pack. And now they are building battery recycling facilities. So their vision of, of, of this future of, of electrification is that they control the whole cycle all the way through. And I think that's really, um, really quite a compelling vision. It's a very strong strategic position to put themselves in, because in the end, that means they will be independent, more or less, of supply chain concerns. And they will be generating value out of those battery packs through their entire life cycle. So I think this is a really interesting strategy from Volkswagen. I, I will have to say uh, Tesla is probably doing best on EVs. I have to admit that I personally bet against Tesla since 2010, more or less, and I was wrong each time. I stopped doing it in the last couple of years. Uh, but um, uh, Tesla is doing amazingly very small numbers of errors in their decisions. They, they are moving very fast. Uh, they are innovating. They keep innovating. Uh, they don't have this uh, long relationship with second and third tier uh, uh, suppliers, so they can change things fast. Uh, and in the market, as we talk about the need to very fast change, they're the one who can do it. Uh, their battery technology is changing very, very fast. And people ask me, when do we know that a car company is serious about, uh, about electric cars? And I said, when they will have their own secret sauce with the batteries. Same as every serious car company have their own engines. You're not a real car company if you buy your engine from some other supplier. You are only if you have your secret sauce, then you're a real car company. And with batteries, it's just the same. And Tesla keep doing it. They keep innovating. They keep investing in uh, the supply chain of the batteries. They will probably going to be the first to have hybrid batteries with two different chemistry within the same battery uh, and, and, and things like that. Uh, so I... I I keep betting now, after many years of doing the, the other direction, keep betting on Tesla to be the technology leader in, in the next couple of years. And how about the U.S.? Who do you think is leading in the U.S.? So Tesla is, uh, Tesla is um, um, 80, 70 plus percent of the EV market in the U.S. When all the other OEMs together are 30 percent. So they're kind of the cars and the models. Everyone have a lot of models, <laughs> but they're not selling them. Uh, Jaguar is selling a couple of nice cars, and this one sells a couple of nice cars, but Tesla is the one who sells the high numbers. And when they introduce the Model 3 and the Model Y, they, they become a real competition. That's the first time that companies like uh, BMW and others were actually seeing their sales dropping in the U.S. because of Tesla. Uh, so in, in the U.S., they are dominating the market. They also dominate the market because they have charging solution that no one else has right now. Uh, a, a big part of their, of their market domination. That's also a good reason for me to keep saying that Tesla is the number one innovator uh, uh, and the strongest uh, player in this market today. 
Mm. Yeah, you know, I'd, I'd like to offer you a slightly left field view on 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 the innovation side. Uh, there's a very small British company uh, called Arrival. Uh, they've just opened or just in the process of opening up a plant in uh, Carolina, South Carolina, I believe. And they're not strictly speaking a car company. They they are currently mostly in the market producing uh, light commercial vehicles, you know, small urban delivery vehicles and, and, and similar sized kind of buses. But they also have a contract here in the UK to deliver to Uber for their electric car fleet in London. Now, here's the interesting thing. They are primarily a software business. They, that's how they describe themselves. They operate a completely different production and distribution model. So their model is based on what they call micro factories. And so rather than having a, a large car plant producing maybe 200, 300,000 cars per annum and distributing across huge distances, they are locating their factories in the markets they serve. Now, this is fantastic politics. Because all of a sudden, you are really bringing those jobs, that value, into the communities that are buying your product. Um, and, and I think this is going to be a really successful business. I think it's really interesting. It's got a lot of growth potential. They've had huge investments from the like of BlackRock and similar venture capital funds. So, you know, I can really see them redefining what it is to be uh, an automotive manufacturer. Uh, a really interesting case. On the infrastructure advancement, do you see any companies with great charging tech that could be taking a greater market share of that area? You know, on the infrastructure side, is there's <laughs> such chaos out there. Um, there's a huge amount of innovation going on in terms of, you know, not just the actual technologies, but the, the backup behind them. You know, what, what do you do about uh, strengthening the grid and so forth? And you do see a lot of really interesting developments on on the apps, you know, how to interface with the, with the consumer and so on. There's many, many innovations going on in Europe at the moment. It's really hard to pick a winner, you know, 10, 10 years hence. That's going to be a tough call. Um, as Gil said earlier, making money in, in infrastructures is really tough. Now, we've got, for example, Ionity as, as the high-speed, um, high-power infrastructure supplier in Europe. They're rolling out their system. But, you know, it's a, it's a tough balance between the cost of installation, the amount of capacity you want to have utilized, and, and the size of your customer base. And as you expand your customer base, you've got to expand your, your capacity to deliver charges. If you expand capacity too fast, you're not making money. If you don't do it fast enough, you've got unhappy customers. It's a really tough call. I absolutely agree. And I think that uh, the main issue here is economy of scale. So uh, with infrastructure, most of the new players, uh, the small ones, will probably disappear within 10 years. There is no room for hundreds of companies. Each one have a couple of chargers here or there. Or we will not install dozen different apps on our phone to, to charge. So only the big one will survive. Um, if you ask me about the U.S., I can say uh, Tesla infrastructure. And when Tesla will decide to start selling charging uh, opportunity to other OEMs, uh, they already have a very strong uh, infrastructure that, that will survive. Um, Electrify America, uh, which is a subsidiary of VW, they have to spend billions of dollars as part of the Dieselgate uh, uh, settlement. So they have a good chance to be one of the big players. Uh, just because they have to be here and they already have this economy of scale. And I believe that there will be a third big player 
but I don't know to uh, put my finger on who is going to be this third big player. I can tell you that it will be a player that will sign contracts with as many OEMs as possible. That will be the way to survive. That will be their bread and butter, not a, not a customer that pay once in a while, but actually a subscription. You will buy electric car, you will get subscription, that will give them some money that will be a good starting point. And I think that that will be the third big provider. A fourth one, I will bet that we will not see a fourth big one. Or maybe the third one will be a couple of regional ones, West Coast and the East Coast. But I think that most of the providers today uh, will not survive. What do you think needs to happen in all these areas? If you're looking five, 10 years down the road, what are the good first steps in your mind that need to happen to help kick off this revolution? What can be done kind of today and over the next decade to help further that? Well, if I, if I was feeling brave and I was president of the US, I would remove all the import barriers. Second thing I do <laughs> before I was thrown out of office would be um, put up petrol prices, tax, 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 and use the tax explicitly to fund electric vehicle uptake. And then the third thing I do would be really to focus on the infrastructure, because if you create that web, then basically car companies and, and users will come along and fill it. In, in this kind of chicken and egg debate, I'm a big fan of let's build that infrastructure out and make sure that there's a big safety net available to all those consumers who do then step into it. And you, you do those three things. Um, <laughs> admittedly, it would be fairly chaotic for a while, um, but it would certainly uh, kickstart a major transition in the U.S. automotive industry and in U.S. automobility. I, I really like Peter's ideas. So let's say if we can do them, let's do that. A very high gas price and so on, gas tax. But if we cannot, <laughs> uh, I will. I will aim for uh, for. My take is, is also pretty hard for a president or a decision makers. I think we have to make the car companies make these cars. So as they have zero emission vehicle mandate, like what California have, that actually force the car companies to start making these cars. And that's because you ask what will make the consumer buy them. The car companies know how to sell cars. They know way better than the government how to sell cars. The government should not be in the business of promoting this technology or that. The government should tell them to make these cars and they will make them. For example, we talked about these trucks, these F-150s. These trucks have a, a, a great power outlet. You don't need to carry a generator with you anymore. They have great opportunities for vacations and for camping and for RVs. And I see now when the car company is starting to make them, they learn what sell them. And the starting point is not to that the government will push the consumer to sell, to buy these cars, not, by, not just incentives, not just education, they should push the OEMs to make these cars and then help and support with infrastructure, with education, but only as a support team. Without the push for the car companies, it will not happen. Maybe bringing cars from outside will be the push for the car companies. I'm a little bit worried, but I think that that's part of the global market anyway, and they know it. Uh, but I think that the starting point is always the car companies. That's the supply. 
starting with with creating the supply that's where we need a new more policies very interesting yeah you're right they know how to sell cars they've been doing it for how long give them the goalpost to operate within and, and let them let them do their thing well listen th- this has been very very interesting uh, dialogue around all the different aspects of, of electric vehicles and like I said at the beginning I think we could spend an entire season on all the various areas so I really appreciate your time. Uh, would probably appreciate a future episode to come back to further the discussions uh, on this. But really, before we before we go, throw it out to each each one of you. Where do you see the electric vehicle industry in 2035? What is maybe your big prediction that you see that's a big change from where we are today? So call it you know a little little bit under 15 years from now. Yeah, what a, what a great question. Um, well, you know what, I, my, my former professor, he always used to say to me, you know, th- this industry is an industry dominated by scale and that, uh, you know, there'll always be a, a push to consolidation, bigger and bigger companies. And yet somehow over the years, change has always happened underneath that has decimated that process of change. I think that pattern will continue. And I think that the, the next phase is going to be a huge rush of new entrants from all over the place, tiny little startups, niche providers, great big companies like Foxcom. Uh, you, know, you, you will see car, existing car companies spinning out new businesses themselves. It's going to be a, a much more diverse, dynamic landscape. This idea of the kind of the big three, that's going to go. You know, it's going to be a lot more exciting for consumers, a lot more interesting for consumers. Uh, for people working in this industry, it's going to be a lot more exciting and interesting too because there'll be huge engineering challenges. Um, and I think, you know, at, at the end of all of this, we'll find perhaps a, a much better fit between cars and society than we have now. And, and that's got to be the big hope, you know, because at the moment the fit's not great in all sorts of ways. Cars deliver fantastic things, but they also deliver many problems. And, and it's, it's getting over that, I think, is, is the key. And I think it will happen. By 2035, we'll see a very different uh, automotive world. Yes, I, I absolutely agree. We will see a very different supply chain. And some of the car companies, some of the OEMs that are here today will not be part, part of the portfolio in 2035. I think some of the leggers will not will not survive. They will survive the next ten years, maybe, but then this transition will uh, will be fast, and some of them will not survive. The new one will come. To add to this, uh, startups and small companies, there are two main markets. One we already looking at all the time. It's on our radar, and that's China. When most of the buyers who of their first car will be electric car. Their first car ever will be electric car. Uh, they're totally skipping the gasoline. But the even larger market that we didn't even start tapping to is India. And India will move to electric way, will totally skip the gasoline phase of, of car ownership. Uh, and that's, I think, what the largest change will happen in, in the 2030s. It's starting now slow, but the big jump will be in the 2030s. And we are talking about 1.4 billion people, more or less. Uh, and, and this is a huge market that will be only electric. They will totally skip the, the uh, gasoline phase. Uh, and that will change the supply chain. That will change the price of vehicles all over the world. Uh, and, and that's what one of the big changes I see for the next decade. 
I'm curious to see if you guys are right. Uh, it, it all makes sense. I'm not betting my pension. <laughs> <laughs> but when you when you talk about people, their first car is, is an electric car. Uh, I think that's definitely changing a mentality that I think is is one of the difficult things to get over. Like we've talked about today, but there's a lot of different things that can happen, and that's that would really accelerate it if all you've ever known. I mean, the kids today, all they've ever known is cell phones. I don't think they've seen a landline. Uh, or very few of them. So again, this has been a very interesting conversation and I really appreciate your time today. And I'm sure that we're going to have more topics on this in the future. And hopefully you can join us again at some point. Yeah, just thank you very much for having us. It was a great discussion. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for the discussion. Thank you, David. Thank you, Gil. Uh, really interesting. I I've learned a lot. As you can see, electric vehicles have come a long way with transport decarbonization, particularly in the first half of 21. But through our discussion today, I hope everybody's learned that there's still a lot of areas to focus on as we continue this accelerated development for energy transition, particularly surrounding electric vehicles. Join me in a couple weeks as we further dive into the technology surrounding the energy transition.